Hello and welcome to November. It's Signal. It's from the Medianet. And it's just me and Sam this month. Hello and welcome to the Medianet podcast called Signal. Hopefully you are joining us for the first time. You're new listeners. We know that a bunch of you have joined in the wake of the recent Church and Media Conference and thank you so much if you are new to listening to the show. I am joined this month by my good friend and co-collaborator in this wonderful world of churchy media things, Mr. Sam Hales. Thank you very much, James. Great to be back. <laughs> thank you. I'm James Poulter, your host, and this month we are going to be doing some good recapping of all things that happened over at the Church and Media Conference a couple of weeks ago. We've got some great audio, uh, including interviews that Sam did with Emma Green from The Atlantic, and later on I chat to Sally Bundock from the BBC about what it's like to get up at five o'clock in the morning and have to read some of the hardest news of the day. And coming up, we'll also have our recommendations later in the show of things that you should be listening to, including something to do with a very interesting old building that Sam went to have a wander around and sat in on some interesting videos from a man called Glenn, how do you want to pronounce his last name? Scrivener. Scrivener, Glenn Scrivener. You might know him from his previous Halloween videos that did quite well on YouTube. So that's coming up later on too. We'll also be covering the news and all the other things. But first of all, I wanted to take an opportunity to just kind of ask you a favour. If you are listening to the show and you've been with us throughout this course of this year, we started way back in January, we're here in November, it's very soon going to be Christmas. You can give me an early Christmas present and you can do one very simple thing. Over on the new iTunes uh, podcasting app, if you are using that as a means of listening to us right now, I would love it if you went in, did a nice long scroll down to the bottom and gave us that crucial, not one, not two, not three, but five stars it does an awful lot to help the show go further give us a review if you're liking what you're hearing and also come and leave us some feedback over on twitter you can get in touch with us at the media net on twitter use the hashtag signal and we'll get back to you with anything and if you want to email us don't forget you can also do that just email signal at the okay ask over let's get into the news and we're going to be talking about all things as well with as i mentioned emma green from the atlantic and sally bundock from the bbc later on in the show so lots to listen to stay with us And we're back. It's news time. Top of the show. What have you got for me, Mr. Hales? Well, the big news, I think, over the past month or so, especially for those of us who live online, uh, I think both me and James are guilty of this, is Mm -hmm. that Twitter has given you even more space to broadcast your witty opinions on politics, news and everything else. Yes, you now have 280 characters rather than 140 characters to make those snide comments, remarks, jokes, bully people, do whatever you want to do on Twitter. Um, you, the various all, ways that people use Twitter, basically. if you follow at Sam Hales on Twitter, you can get... So Hopefully not so much bullying and, 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 and considerably less snark as well. I find that Twitter can be quite a snarky place and I'm trying my best not to add to that. But it, it's an interesting development because this is, I think, quite an unpopular move amongst the people that I follow people aren't particularly happy about this yeah I don't know to be honest obviously I've worked in the social media industry for a long time and you know one of the things that we always kind of loved about Twitter in the early days and particularly you know, I've been on Twitter now for something like nine years I think I had my kind of Twitter you know, anniversary thing come up the other day on on the uh, app and I've always loved the thing about brevity right because you know so much of media is just goes on and on and there's droning and you know kind of just people um you know kind of saying things to kind of fill the character limits I think if any of you have spent any time on LinkedIn recently you'll know that that's definitely what's happening over there uh, putting in unnecessary line breaks and poetry even making its way into LinkedIn updates which you know lord knows what's what's trying to be achieved there but you know on Twitter the brevity thing has been the the kind of saving grace of it really because it gives you that ability to just kind of be concise and I think you know the media 
medium is the message, as Mr. McLuhan once said. You know, it forces you to think about how do I get what could be that kind of long ramble down into the most condensed format. Um, and so I personally think that it could have stayed the way it is. Yeah. Having said that, very quickly I've seen a number of benefits as well about having like a bit more space. I was at a conference uh, earlier this week and trying to kind of give some feedback to a speaker that was not doing a particularly good job, but in a more constructive way than uh, you know kind of just doing the backbiting thing and having a bit more space to kind of elaborate in an individual tweet without having to do the kind of tweet storm of follow this, follow that, one, two, three, fouring, and all these things did make things a little bit easier. Yeah. So, so personally, I'm not. I'm not kind of like upset about it. I mean, there are greater things in the world to be upset about. But, you know, having this kind of double length thing, thing, there is just something that's lost, I think, in the brevity. Well, I, I think as well, from a from a sort of media perspective, as a journalist, I was trained, it really drummed into me right from the beginning to be brief. And actually, does that sentence need to be that long? And the wonderful thing I thought about Twitter was that it teaches people, whether you work in the media or not, it teaches you, I think, a really important skill yeah. of condensing um, stuff down. And, you know, we've got other platforms online. You've got thousand word blog posts and we've still got books if you feel like that's a more important medium but actually it was great having a space where it was so restricted now of course 280 characters that that is still a fairly major restriction but what i've seen is people already um saying in 280 characters what they could have said in 140 and and that's kind of what disappoints me yeah i mean you've had experience of writing headlines and things like that before right you always kind of kind of keep it brief what do you do to try and kind of get those things down to the shortest possible length it's a, I think it's a case of reading, rereading, rereading, and thinking every time, does that word need to be there? Mm. Um, and it is a skill, and I'm certainly nowhere near at the top of my game on this, and there are others that I learn from thinking, well, that's a much better way of crafting a headline. It, it takes real skill, and I think it only comes in practice. And that, again, that's the wonderful thing about Twitter, is it's constant practice at trying to be more and more brief when there was such a tight restriction on the character limit. And as I say, not good, not just good training, perhaps, for journalists, but for anyone who wants to communicate um, in, in a good, healthy um, way in a, in a sort of 21st century world where we have less and less space but you've got to get a lot of meaning across it's a good skill to have I think I mean of course this is coming in the wake of Twitter saying you know, they really kind of wanted to evolve the platform and give people more opportunity to share but actually you know, there's a lot of other things that plenty of people are asking Twitter to do that they've not done and I think you know, kind of giving an additional you know, 140 characters to make things longer I mean again it's just an arbitrary number right in terms of doubling it you know, the, the whole constraint if you don't know that kind of where the 140 characters came thing right comes from text messaging originally 160 characters it took 20 characters to actually do the kind of protocoling at either end which meant that you were left with 140 characters to put into a tweet and obviously twitter was born off of text messaging that was where it originally kind of started so the 140 characters thing was a limitation of technology and now obviously there is no limitation and so expand it out so just doubling the length of a tweet just seems again just a bit of an arbitrary choice yeah bring in editing editing tweets twitter. if you can bring that in if at twitter if ev or you know kind of any of the guys are listening edit the tweets i mean <laughs> yeah maybe restrict that for certain members of the kind of global proletariat but yeah you know, for those of us that you know just kind of average joe blogs here yeah you know, we would quite like the ability to kind of correct a minor grammar- yes. grammatical well, mistake the other question is uh, my understanding is twitter has struggled to grow beyond the current numbers of people actually using it and i have heard it said that actually increasing it to 280 isn't going to make anyone join twitter so so what do you think james is there a problem here that, that unlike facebook which has this huge audience twitter is 
struggling. I mean, it's been said before, hasn't it, that it's it's basically just a load of people who work in the media talking to each other or people who work in politics. It kind of has this very distinct demographic and yeah. it seems to struggle to go beyond that. But I think the, the, you're absolutely striking the right point, right? Because one of the things about Twitter being predominantly, you know, the stereotype running true, that it's predominantly kind of media elites, people that actually work in the industry, journalists, and uh, you know, for the, most of our, our listeners who I know are on Twitter because you tweeted me an awful lot during the conference a couple of weeks ago, is that um, you know, it often gets said, yeah, it's for you know, kind of the media. The difference, I think, between that and the, and why it's not necessarily a problem, um, or maybe why it is a problem, if it's, you know, it's a double-edged sword, is that on one hand, you know, of course, they're going to have a, a product issue, right, of growing the base and actually kind of getting people to come across to Twitter and use that as a more regular app. There's one thing there. But what's really interesting is that when you think that the majority are journalists, the echo chamber effect that gets created by that is, you know, just exponentially wider. Because all, all we know is that what actually happens on Twitter gets reported everywhere else. Yeah. And so if you've got people breaking news, you know, we've seen this with Trump this year. This has been the year that Twitter has been the medium for tw- for news getting out there whether that's announcing, you know, kind of things like the James Comey firing, whether it's, you know, kind of obviously the war of words with North Korea, um, you know, and also some of the kind of gaffes that have happened on our own kind of soil here in the UK with kind of British politicians doing similar kind of issues, particularly in the wake of a lot of the sex scandals that we were kind of dealing with at the moment in Parliament. You know, people announce these things on Twitter because they know that journalists are there, they know it's going to get picked up, and then it spreads out to mainstream yeah. everywhere else. And I think that's the danger of giving people more space <laughs> is, um, you know, kind of, are they going to actually be able to correct what they do there? That would be it, yeah. really interesting. It is incredible how people's opinions on Twitter apparently now equals news. Yeah. Uh, you know, someone said to me a long time ago now, isn't it amazing that you, you turn on the news, you turn on broadcast medium, and often it is literally just somebody has said this on Twitter. Um, I mean, the classic example that recently was the Greg's sausage roll nonsense. So <laughs> Greg's put out this advert and they replaced the baby Jesus in the nativity scene with a sausage roll. And of course, most Christians weren't actually that upset about it. We kind of thought this is a bit of a a silly thing but whatever we don't want to manufacture a load of silly outrage over this it's kind of not worth it um but nevertheless you can always find can't you one or two people on twitter actually being angry about it which you just think okay fine whatever well no the bbc and i'm sure many outlets turned this into a story and said people are angry at greg's and the only evidence they had for that was a couple of random people on twitter which to me just seems bizarre that a couple of people having a random opinion on twitter now will count as real news that us journalists run after i suppose that it's existed long before kind of twitter is an issue i mean the amount of people that actually call into points of view every week to kind of leave their opinion on what they saw on the bbc during the week is obviously a very small minority compared to the amount of license fee payers that are out there and it but does disproportionately skew you know we had this thing uh you know during easter earlier in the was it this year or last year with the kind of cabries and the easter eggs of them taking easter out of easter uh and how many people were actually upset how many people i bumped into in church on sunday morning it was saying they were outraged that their dairy milk egg didn't say the word easter on it i think was fairly minimal but these things get tweeted they get re-reported and they kind of spiral out of control the greg's thing i think is is just a bad bit of advertising quite frankly i mean yeah it's people without cultural context and not making sense but it also strikes the kind of wider point that basically kind of christmas commercialization is just fully entrenched now we we fully expect that christmas doesn't have to be about god doesn't have to be about jesus it is a commercial entity that everyone kind of orients themselves around greg's or any other kind of brands are out there kind of doing exactly the same thing you know not there's not one mention of the baby jesus in the mozzie the monster you know kind of thing from john lewis we won't go into that because i think we've done that and everybody else has to death but you know kind of whether you think there's a monster under the bed or whether or not you think that a sausage roll is more appealing than a kind of a small nativity scene is is kind of by the by it's part of our culture now and i think it's just something we have to live with right 
Yeah, I agree completely. I have nothing to add. <laughs> well, on that basis, we'll move on and um, what, to the other people that you know are kind of going into this broader spectrum. One of the stories I wanted to share this month was a, a recent uh, kind of long form piece from uh, the, the team Vox. Uh, this is written by uh, Tara Isabel Burton, uh, who's one of the members of the the Vox team over in the US, and it's reporting on a new poll that found that almost one in five Americans is what they call spiritual but not religious, and this is kind of a growing what they would call a faith group. Um, um, but with no specific faith in anything. It's kind of this kind of laxed uh, Christianity of some sort. Uh, yeah, kind of based on some of this uh, research, there was a poll that was uh, done by the Public Religion uh, Research Institute looking at kind of the things that, w- this kind of growing category that transcends a kind of individual religious stereotype or identity and looks at this kind of broader understanding that people are becoming more spiritual uh, rather than subscribing to a specific religion. I know there's something that, Sam, you've looked at before, right, in terms of other kind of trends that this is going in. Definitely. I, I think it's quite common, isn't it? The whole, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I think people use that language. I know I know that story is from America, but I think it happens a lot over here. Um, I'm sure it is more popular, perhaps, amongst young people than it is older people. And I guess as we become more secular as a society, it's not necessarily that we've lost any interest at all in anything faith or religious or spiritual. It's just that we have, as a culture, I think we're continually rejecting kind of mainstream organized orthodox christianity but we're quite open to other spiritual stuff the, the classic example is probably the average waterstones bookshelf under spirituality and you look at some of the stuff yeah. on there and it is not mainstream christianity but it's still quite spiritual and people seem seem interested in that so i think people are open to a spiritual reality but it's a mishmash isn't it it's a mixture of all sorts of different stuff it's this kind of pick and mix spirituality of all we'll, we'll have some stuff in my worldview that's kind of eastern and and uh, and and mystical but there are other elements that are more traditional christianity like believing in and one god and, and monotheism so um the interesting thing with people like that i find is you don't have to press very hard as a christian in terms of asking yeah. questions before things to my mind at least do start to unravel a bit because it is this to me this this pick and mix idea that we can pick a bit of religion from this part of the world and from this part of the world and this other belief to me like on a kind of more logical level it just doesn't stand up to much scrutiny yeah i mean the other thing that this kind of survey reported on i think what it's also we've seen in you know kind of here particularly as well and in the recent work that's been done by comres as well from their research reports in terms of kind of people's attitudes to kind of changing spirituality um is this kind of disassociation from kind of the institutional churches and a big part of that is all want to get away from kind of ceremonial kind of pieces the church of england this year is doing their kind of big uh, god with us campaign which um you heard earlier episodes if you scroll back in your podcast feed you'll find an interview with adrian harris who we spoke to a couple of months ago um working on uh, kind of the the digital kind of transformation there and this idea that you know kind of um bringing people back around kind of big spiritual services is actually something a lot of people are crying out for so that, that kind of seems to chime against actually what yes. i was expecting Okay, coming up after the break, we are going to be hearing from Sam and speaking to Emma Green from The Atlantic. Sam, you spoke to Emma recently at the uh, Church and Media Conference. What did you kind of take away from your chat with her? Well, it was really great to, to meet Emma. I'm a huge fan of The Atlantic. You know, I subscribe, d- despite it being an American publication dealing with American topics. It's just so well written. Um, really, really superb journalism. So I thought it was wonderful that, you know, we had someone from The Atlantic, um, someone who does specialise in religion as well, to come and, and speak at the MediaNet conference. So it was literally just as soon as she'd finished speaking on a panel, I just grabbed a few minutes with her to find out more about her, her career and her work. And then later on in the show, I'll be uh, catching up with Sally Bundock, who is from the 
the BBC as she presents the Daily Breakfast show, uh, Early Breakfast on BBC News and uh, currently looking after business, moving into a new role, looking after more broad news soon. So we'll be hearing from her later on in the show, plus our recommendations. But coming up after the break, Emma Green from The Atlantic. I am here with Emma Green. Emma Green, who writes for The Atlantic, who has come all the way from Washington, D.C. via Jerusalem to be here today um, and speak at a panel session about millennials in the media. So first of all, Emma, tell me about your journey here and how have you come via Jerusalem to be here today? Uh, Well, so I am doing some reporting in Jerusalem. And as my boss said to me as I was about to depart, you know, there's a little bit of religion in Jerusalem, Uh, uh, which is great for my beat area. I often focus on religion and politics in the U.S. So it's been wonderful to expand out a little bit and see the world. That's brilliant. And um, where does the fascination come from for you for religion? Because obviously that's where you spend really all your time writing about religious issues. What is it about religion um, that really interests you? I find that religion is often a door to getting people to talk about the things that are most central to their life. So this is for people who are actively religious and identified, or people who are just spiritual seekers, asking them questions about their deep beliefs in the world, their family, their traditions that they grew up with, what they want out of life, uh, how they think about morality and ethics. All of these things are, are really centrally held for a lot of people, and I love getting to talk to people in that intimate way. There's been a lot said about uh, the UK becoming increasingly secular, arguably at a far faster rate than America. Um, Is that true? And how do you see the future, particularly of Christianity in America, how do you see that playing out? Mm. So in general, in the West, I think there is a shared uh, sense of disaffiliation from religious institutions. And while it may not be happening as quickly in the U.S., certainly that is a big part of the story of millennials and religion. Um, I don't think, however, that religion is going away anytime soon. Uh, In the United States in particular, 70% of people still identify as Christians, and whether or not they attend every week is sort of a different question. But it's still a pretty religious country. Um, I think within millennials, there are also a lot of subcultures and a sense of journey, seeking, desire to engage with questions that have typically been classed as religious questions. And so while the form of religion may change, while it might diversify and fracture, I think that we're going to see a lot of flowering happen as millennials grow up into being 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s. You've just spoken, of course, about millennials here at the conference, and you told a brilliant story I wanted you to share with our podcast audience about using Slack, which, of course, is a messaging system you you can use in an office, and how there is this kind of perception that millennials are just constantly staring at screens, and that's often seen as a bad thing. But you had a really quite, I thought, heartwarming story about how millennials will use digital technology in a way that does create some form of community, even if it's a community that we wouldn't necessarily immediately uh, relate to. So the newsroom that I've worked in for a long time in Washington, D.C. is fairly young, not all millennial, but fairly young. And we use this messaging platform called Slack, basically like any group chat. And there's this phenomenon that happens uh, where you'll hear a titter happening from one part of the room and then from another and then another and then suddenly everyone's laughing and you realize that everyone is laughing at the same joke in Slack but nobody has said a thing. And I really do think this is beautiful because it shows the community that's happening online is not a false community, it's not a lesser community, it's just different. I don't think it can take the place of having a conversation at dinner or necessarily getting together as a group to form a community in a church or wherever it might be, Um, but it's 
a good reminder that we shouldn't dismiss the kind of connection that does happen online. And we're back. Thanks so much to Emma for giving her time to come along to the Church and Media Conference, for travelling all the way over from the US via, by way of Israel uh, to get uh, herself there. And uh, thanks for the time that she spent with Sam there as well on that interview. Uh, Sam, obviously, you were at the conference with me. You just heard, uh, obviously, that little takeout. What was your kind of main takeaways from this year's Church and Media Conference? Well, as always, as well as enjoying, obviously, the speakers and the panellists and people like Emma and, and the kind of contribution and perspectives they bring, for me, one of the, the highlights of the conference is actually less about what happens in the main sessions but what happens the rest of the time and the opportunity is not just for networking but for meeting people who work in the media who you haven't seen for some time and just to hear from others what's going on in in areas you don't work in but are still related to your job it's just so so valuable and i can't really think of another event like it where it enables you to network with with media professionals you know obviously i work for a christian magazine but actually it's really important for me to be talking to people who are christians working in the mainstream to hear their perspective on things as well so um and, and also you know Again, it's it's stating the obvious, but the best story ideas often do come from conversations with people who think differently to you, who are involved in areas that you're not. Um, And so really, it was just great to reconnect with a load of people, some of whom I hadn't seen for some time. Excellent. Yeah, I personally took away a lot of that as well in terms of kind of connecting with those of you that are listening as well, which is great to kind of finally meet some of you face to face. And thanks so much for those of you that came and told us that you've been listening to the show. We really appreciate that. You'll be able to get all of the information about what's come out of the conference. You can go find more of it over at the MediaNet website. Just go to themedianet.org slash conference where you can see photos from the day you can also see the highlights video as well you can go and find a great photo of sam and i building lego during my breakout <laughs> session which um you know, how did you find that sam it was wonderful i trying to construct this whilst being filmed for instagram stories with everyone watching in great detail me trying to and to be honest with you i've not even attempted anything lego probably since i was about five years old uh so i was just petrified thinking if i can't build this or i struggled to follow the instructions i'm gonna look like a right <laughs> idiot um so i felt like there's a lot of pressure weirdly but we got there in the end and uh, the figure was constructed and we have photographic evidence that I did manage to build a toy that is aimed at a five-year-old so I'm feeling really proud of myself I mean I'm clearly really talented in the Lego department it's the top of your game there well you yeah, know it was, it was great but to carry on on the trick of what we did at the conference I have the pleasure now of sharing with you our second interview for the show a first for us of doing two interviews in one um, this is a, a chat that I had at the conference with Sally Bundock from the BBC Sally has had a really interesting journey of multiple years working at the Beeb working in various different roles and currently is presenting the early breakfast show on BBC News and BBC World Service, which is uh, the kind of the the daily kind of thing that you might wake up to if you are about to head into the world. She's had the experience of having to read some of the most interesting and most horrific stories that you can imagine, as well as dealing with some really big people in the business world presenting Business Live. And I had a chance to catch up with her uh, after the uh, the keynote that she gave in the morning to just talk about what life is like having to get up and face that kind of daily onslaught of the daily news. So here is Sally Bundock from the BBC in my interview with her at the church and media conference anyone who gets up very early in the morning watches bbc one will know me well because for 15 years i've been presenting the business programming in the five to six o'clock hour on bbc one um and also i carry on presenting business and financial news programs on bbc world news till 9 a.m so my working day starts at uh, 3 30 at New Broadcasting House in central London, and I finish at 9.30. It's um, a crazy hour, but I found that it's worked extremely well with being a mum. I've got three children, and they're all quite young. And so I've, I've sort of juggled being a television journalist presenter 
and having actually quite a busy career with raising my children as well, which is very, very important to me because I wanted to be a hands-on mum as well. Yeah, what kind of responsibility do you feel in terms of the way you present a story or the questions that you might ask? Do you, does your faith actually change those that approach that you might take where another you know, kind of interviewer or someone who's tackling a story wouldn't do if they didn't have the faith that you have? Well, one thing that I do make a difference in is the editorial agenda of our programmes. Um, I have been presented with stories um, where I just know they're not true. So, for example, we do a paper review every morning where we look at the international press and one of the producers put forward a story in one of our UK t- uh, re- uh, tabloid newspapers which was talking about the fact that the church is in crisis and, and the church is in decline. And I completely disagreed with that. And I said that isn't true you know this is a journalist who's just taking a very small narrow view of what church is and they're going on some sort of statistics that they've got from some bureau I said I know that churches are growing they're growing all over the world and they're expanding rapidly and 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 God is on the move so we're not doing that story and we just threw it out so that's where I can have an impact also editorial stories where they want to cover things with a certain angle and I know that it's not again the truth and actually I've never had a situation where journalists have uh, you know colleagues have have tried to override me because of my angle on it because the thing is I always come at it with the truth and the point is in broadcast journalism we're to to tell the truth on a story so you know as as long as I've got my facts right and, and I've got a good reason for a steer on a story they're actually with me um so, but then there was a situation many years ago when I first started out in my career. I was a trainee journalist at BBC Radio Leicester, and I did a piece on churches growing and, and rapidly exploding in Leicester, which was actually the case. It went on air, and the next morning it went on air on their breakfast programme. I was being kind of told off by their head of religion at BBC Radio Leicester. Now, I was a trainee, so she was kind of dressing me down and telling me what was wrong with my report. And while she was doing that, in the middle of it, the man who was the head of the whole radio station came up and went, are you Sally? Wow, it's such a great story this morning. I loved it. And then he walked off. And she looked at me and she was kind of stopped in the middle of her conversation. Now, actually, from a journalistic point of view, she was probably bang on. It was a bit biased because that's my where I come from. But I felt like, you know, God, God intervened in the middle of the conversation with the head of the whole radio station coming over just right. to say, Sally, I thought your story was fantastic. So kind of obviously the past couple of years um, in particular there feels like an acceleration of these kind of the the news has just gone wild it's a really odd place to work right now obviously in the wake of trump brexit all of these different stories and obviously working at the bbc having to deal with that kind of trying to be impartial there must be times when you felt frustrated about the way in which you have to Mm. report things when actually you're trying to kind of weigh something out but in your heart you're feeling like no this is right or wrong can you just talk to us about maybe an experience of that yeah that is um, really, really tough. And uh, we get criticised a lot at the BBC. And I've been criticised because we, with Brexit, for example, we're trying desperately not to editorialise about Brexit because a lot of people said they wanted to leave Europe. Um, I personally didn't want to. And, And my job as a business and financial journalist is to talk through the financial ramifications of the whole thing. Um, It's really difficult to not draw conclusions, to not say, oh, the economy's under pressure or whatever, because immediately we get criticism from viewers. They are really quick to criticise us. Um, And sometimes they are absolutely bang on. And and I have to put my hands in there and go, yes, you know, I I was editorialising in that particular case. 
it is really frustrating but i think it's very very important that the viewers do get a non-biased opinion because especially in the age we're living in now with trump with brexit with uh, all these stories i think one thing that brexit taught us is the media world and and this closed world that you know among decision makers in politics in media um in in further education we may have a similar way of thinking but there's a lot of people out there who don't and they need to be represented and they need to be heard and they need to be uh involved in the conversation and i think they forced themselves onto the agenda and um and i think we have a very important job to do to present the news in broadcast in a way that is factual and impartial because in this day and age when there is so much stuff out there especially on social media the US election showed us that you know a lot of stuff on social media may have been influenced by Russia who knows um so it's really important to be able to switch something on and listen to something and know actually these guys ha- have a legal duty to be impartial and tell me something without g- putting their steer on it So I think that's what's so good about our broadcast industry in the UK and I think that's something to be celebrated as frustrating as it is for me at times. And of course you also have to live out not only a life on daily you know, kind of you're up there on the BBC in the morning but you're also you know, kind of now more accessible I suppose to the world than ever before you know, you're on Twitter we were tweeting you this morning when you know, kind of when you were joining us at the the church and media conference how do you kind of handle that constant feedback and input and and not let that kind of get to you I'm sure that like with many of the journalists working in kind of high profile positions you're open to criticism from Joe blogs at the other end of, of the phone um, as well as obviously the kind of the, the the mass media as well just talk to us a little bit about how you kind of deal with with that on a kind of data Day. Yeah, well, being on BBC World News, especially at the hour we're on, between 5 and 6 a.m. in the UK, we're pretty much all over the world. The whole world is watching us, apart from the east coast of America. But we've got the west coast of America, we've got Asia, we've got Africa, Europe. We've got everybody watching, and so we get a huge response when we're on air. We get a lot of social media interaction. In my case, because I'm female, a lot of it's about what I look like and what I wear, unfortunately, and I don't see that ever changing. I don't respond to that. Um a lot of it is really welcome and really encouraging where people are talking about what we've discussed on our program and they want to engage further. I try and reply to a lot of it because I think it's important. Mm. These guys are our viewers. This is why we're here. So I try and reply to it in a constructive way. Um but when I'm not at the BBC, I'm not on Twitter because I'm at home with my children and I'm a mum and I don't And I don't quite know how I managed to do this, but when I am not in the BBC newsroom, I rarely watch TV or listen to news on the radio unless something enormous is going on, in which case I grab bits and bobs. But that's because my kids get a bit of me and not all of me, you know. And and so that's really really important to me. So as far as social media goes, it's a professional thing only and I'm on it when I'm in the BBC newsroom. I am on Facebook but a very private account that nobody will ever find and it's just people I I'm I I love and know personally who are overseas and I don't see. But I mean I have seen articles written about me that I'm going through divorce and I go to Harrods to go to yoga classes and my kids <laughs> eat in Harrods and it's all absolute rubbish and I have no idea where that's come from. <laughs> but there's articles written about me in those terms and it's completely made up which which m- makes me um question a lot of things that we read online it reminds us that there's a lot of stuff out there that's yeah. completely not true and we must remember that when we read about other people as well 
have you done anything to kind of build any habits to kind of stay resilient to those things what what do you do to kind of make sure that you can compartmentalize or switch off you know kind of how's that kind of changed uh i'm just extremely busy uh <laughs> stay there's busy no, there's no kind of magic formula it's just the you know i get home from work i sleep i walk my dog when i'm walking my dog is when i'm praying and i'm worshiping in the woods that is a big important part of my day and that's a way of unloading from my work day as well and then i'll get the kids from school and then and if anyone who's got children will know it's after school clubs it's dinner it's homework it's it's go 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 and then of course i have to get to bed early because i get up at 2 15 the next day so the day just goes don't ask me it just rolls so i have no kind of <laughs> special formula or particular way of doing things I am just ruled by circumstances. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Sally Bundock says, just stay busy. It'll all work out. Sally, thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Signal. It's been a pleasure to have you. You're very welcome. Well, thanks so much to Sally for giving us the time, both in terms of getting up early and then staying up all morning uh, and then coming over to the conference to talk uh, on a panel of a bunch of other Christian journalists wanting to hear from her and then giving me the extra time to go and talk to her afterwards. I just found it thoroughly inspiring and it's been great to uh, connect with her. Uh, Like I say, if you want to find out more and also want to see uh, highlights from the uh, panel event, you can go find that on themedianet.org slash conference, which is where all the info is from this year's conference. So we have gone... From the divine and sublime to the ludicrous, probably, as we head into the recommendations section. Who <laughs> knows? I'm hoping that we're going to kind of keep Anything this on. Anything could happen. Yeah. So, um, speaking of the kind of the crazy, Sam, you had an interesting experience a couple of weeks ago, which I wanted you to tell us about, and it's linked to your recommendation. Some of you will know the work of Glenn Scrivener. Uh, he has been you know, kind of pushing the envelope in terms of releasing these different kind of interesting Christian slanted takes on different cultural events, in most notably a number of Halloween videos. And he's now working on a new project that Sam went to go check out uh, recently in the past couple of weeks. Just tell us a little bit about the kind of background so sure so glenn scrivener is an evangelist um but he has an amazing ability to write videos that go viral on social media he's done ones around halloween he's done ones around remembrance sunday and of course christmas his last christmas video which featured um down syndrome children and made a really powerful point on the back of sally phillips documentary about are we in danger of screening um these people out um just superb videos that's the, what's so genius about these videos is if you're a christian you'll be on board with it because it's communicating a christian message but you'll also click the share button because you're aware that this still has relevance for a non-christian audience those who may not share your faith will still get a lot out of this and will actually probably see something of the gospel through it so he has an amazing track record of creating viral videos all that said i found myself in the unusual position of getting to visit a film set with an oscar uh, nominated director um the producer of resident evil was involved which was amazing um some fantastic actors and of course glenn was the writer so glenn told me on set at this uh, this i think this mansion worth about six million quid in north london um incredible place it's got it even had a swimming pool at the bottom of the garden which um i hadn't even realized there were places in well i had realized there were places in london we have a swimming pool at the bottom there, garden. A but few, let's yeah. let's just say I'm, I'm not from that background myself so it was like quite <laughs> incredible to be there and um anyway glenn was saying he's the only person on set who has nothing to do because he's just the writer and i think to be completely honest you know he he was struggling with that thing of i've written this and i've handed it over to this team of experts to bring these this production of this next christmas video to life um and uh you know struggling with you know how much can i sort of 
come back in and say can we do this differently and trying to hold back but I felt I felt sorry for him because it must be so hard to sort of entrust this amazing thing that you've been yeah. thinking about for six months to, to another team but Glenn was also saying you know these guys are an incredible professional team and they know more than me in terms of how to bring something to life and, and as I say the reason I'm excited about this is it's it's a new project for Glenn in the sense that he's raised £16,000 to do this he's brought some professionals in and you know the, the other videos he's done on a shoestring budget have been incredible and so I'm really excited to see with a bit more money behind it just how far these videos can go and he's actually releasing four videos the first one comes out on monday and they're all um uh sort of nativity themed i don't want to say too much more i mean i saw i saw some of what was being filmed and i'm excited about it i don't want to give away the plot um if you want to have a bit more sneak behind the scenes there are some photos up on premierchristianity.com forward slash blog um but i'm excited so you need to like the speak life uk facebook page or just search for speak life it should come up and you'll be the first to see these videos when they come out i'm very excited yeah and just to give you a little west of the appetite i will just play you a little clip here of he came down this is the uh, episode that he released last christmas about uh, you know what christmas is like and features a number of those uh, families that have to deal with obviously the difficult sometimes uh, challenging situation but often life-giving no of down syndrome so no here's a clip of he came down from glenn scribbler with, with a disability but then you still feel like but why did this happen to us Welcome to all of you. Please take a seat. We want to now share a nativity treat. This story of Christmas, we tell it in rhyme. Some actors have lines, while some of us mime. I was overwhelmed with grief uh, at the loss. I thought a beautiful baby has got Down syndrome and it's such a disaster. Meanwhile, great Caesar, Augustus, in Rome, made a decree, return to your home. For Joseph, this ruling meant Bethlehem town, so they rode on their donkey all the way down. God didn't give me a straightforward answer of why this happened. It just took time for me to realise God's answer was, wasn't so much what was wrong with Levi as much as there was something wrong with the way I was thinking. Cool. Well, so if you want to check those videos out, as Sam said, coming up over the next couple of weeks, first episode of that new series from Glenn Scrivener drops on Monday. Check out Speak Life, which is the uh, the brand that he releases those under over on YouTube and on Facebook. Right, to my recommendation, a bit of a different one, a bit of a change of tack, but something I found really useful and something that's been very life-giving to me for the past couple of weeks. I've been reading this new book called Principles by Ray Dalio. Ray's a really interesting character. At one point, according to Forbes, he was the eighth most rich man in the world. Uh, he has you know, worked under re- running something called Bridgewater Consulting and Partners uh, for the past uh, you know, kind of 30 odd years. So basically Ray has released this book which is uh, divided in three chapters. The first you know, kind of area is around his life and where he's kind of coming from and then he breaks down the principles that he runs his business and life by in two sections. One life principles the second work principles and he intends to release another volume in about 18 months time uh, around the whole practice of you know what is life and work about and uh, the, the second volume will be around uh, economics and uh, financial management which is obviously where he kind of comes from uh, bridgewater is one of the the biggest hedge funds in the world there's something like 500 billion assets under management um and not a christian guy but one of the things that i find really interesting about this is the way in which he operates his life based around these principles and so rather than thinking 
thinking he's right. He says, how do I know that I'm right? He tries to ask these kind of questions. And so one of the kind of key parts of his whole kind of principle of work is to actually document your life principles, which I thought was just such an interesting concept and something that so many of us, you know, kind of think that we do. And obviously kind of, you know, being Christian, wanting to kind of live by the principles that God gives us in the Bible. But actually, day to day, we operate our decision making, not just by those principles, but by many others that are baked into us through nature and nurture and the life that we kind of construct around one ourselves and often don't take a time to step back and actually write them down for ourselves so i just found this book you know thoroughly enriching um and you're know, kind of trying to find a way of actually you know document those principles for myself it's certainly been a kind of challenge uh, to me just some of the kind of the key takeaways um that i've kind of given you know kind of kind of had from this is one of the things that he talks about is that the types of um, you know, kind of businesses and organisations you want to work within all have two types of people, he says. Those who work to be part of a mission and those who work for a paycheck. And I just found that so challenging for many of us that are working in kind of media and creative industries is that which are you doing? Are you there to work for the paycheck or are you there to kind of get behind the mission? And then you know, documenting your principles against that. So I thought that was particularly interesting. What I wanted to do is, as part of this recommendation, as we're in the habit of playing a lot more clips in this show, I thought I'd play you a little clip of um, Ray's TED 2017 talk. You can go watch the full talk over on TED.com. But here is a little clip of uh, Ray Dalio from the principles talk he gave at TED. I had to be an entrepreneur and an investor. And what goes along with that is making a lot of painful mistakes. So I made a lot of painful mistakes. And with time, my attitude about those mistakes began to change. I began to think of them as puzzles, that if I could solve the puzzles, they would give me gems. And the puzzles were... What would I do differently in the future so I wouldn't make that painful mistake? And the gems were principles that I would then write down so I would remember them that would help me in the future. And because I wrote them down so clearly, I could then eventually discover I could then embed them into algorithms. A little clip there from Ray Dalio. So this kind of idea about principles, right, is that just something he kind of lives by. I just want to, yeah, Sam, have you ever kind of taken the time to kind of actually write down the things that you kind of live by? No, but but since hearing about this book about five minutes ago, <laughs> it does make you think that would be a really f- kind of fun project to do. And I don't know whether I'd want to make it public and <laughs> certainly not publish it as a book um, or not. I don't know. I, I might want to. It's a fascinating idea to think, well, what are the principles that I live by? And as you say, it's, it's not the sort of thing that naturally comes to mind. Again, perhaps working in the media find myself to be busy always thinking what's new what's next and how much time do I sort of think about why do I act in that way and what's guiding me the, the kind of theological element of it that, that came to mind was actually a book by Tom Wright called Virtue Reborn and, and I think one of the I mean it's an amazing book and it was a long time since I read it but I think one of the points in that is this idea that as we live by the spirit that the spirit guides us and when it, when it comes to morality it's perhaps left less having to think through Oh, is that right? Is that wrong? But we allow ourselves if we if we have a sort of um, uh, I think it was called Virtue Reborn was the book. So so if we look at the idea of virtues, virtues can guide us in our in our morality and virtues by the spirit. This is a terrible explanation of an amazing book by Tom Wright, who's obviously a theologian <laughs> and I'm not. Um, but there's something in that, isn't there? About whether you call them principles or whether you talk about being guided by the spirit and whether you talk about virtue, which again is this kind of it, it's not rule based. It's underlying principles that guide you. I think is a is a really interesting topic. Yeah, I mean, obviously, as you heard in the clip, yeah, he talks also a lot about this algorithmic decision making that he kind of couples that with. Obviously, yeah, that's exactly. Particularly in the 
financial markets but he was saying yeah a lot of the principles that they've tried to kind of then work into kind of rule-based systems that you can run concurrently and that he, he talks in the book about you know sometimes he will test him his own theories by the numbers and sometimes the numbers will go against him and then he has to reset his principles and right. i think that idea of having a constant re-evaluation and he talks about this idea of radical open-mindedness the whole time is just something that particularly fascinates me at this point as we kind of you know so much of this you know kind of what principles do i live by thing you know people documenting mm. the way in which they live and the way in which they work he's doing this in a very radically transparent way and i think it, it kind of is a challenge for all of us who you know try and say oh i live by you know, yeah what the bible says but yeah, what else are you living by as yeah. well and how much are you kind of consciously aware of it and I, I wonder how much of those things take someone else to point out in you I wonder how much of stuff that we just do that actually is not just someone comes on and says actually the way you do that is quite different and are you aware that's a principle that you're living by and that could be good or bad I guess absolutely yeah he talks in the book about you know surrounding yourself with believable people and what he means by believable people is that you know we all know that there are other people out there in the world that are better experts on certain subjects and matters than ours and um, and that if you you know, have a high level of believability in that person then you're going to kind of get that kind of corrective route kind of um you know kind of drawn out for you and i think that idea that we need to actually put that out there into the world and then have people actively challenge us back on those things in order to advance those principles rewrite them redocument them put them back into implementation you know that is the whole kind of exploratory work of kind of trying to work out what it means to kind of live by faith right because we live by faith and so therefore not all of the rules are obvious and written down for not every situation as we always contend with day to day but you know trying to kind of get that um, you know, concise and, and really kind of distilled action maybe into 280 characters or less now um, would be a great way of kind of operating so it's something I've been challenged by I hope you'll enjoy uh, reading that along as well available in all the regular places as well as online Principles by Ray Dalio there's also a great website principles.com as well which you can go check out so that's our recommendation and that's our show thank you so much for listening to signal once again in the november episode next month as i mentioned we've got a number of great things coming up for you we've got a couple more interview highlights that we captured over at the media conference we also have a the clip from paul carenza talking about christmas we're going to dig into a little bit of what some of the kind of fun facts and history around christmas and we will obviously be back to kind of wish you a wonderful happy and festive season ahead but until that time i have been james poulter and i've been sam hales and you've been listening to signal from the media net Go like, subscribe, do all of those wonderful things. Give us five stars over on iTunes. It really does help. We would much appreciate it, particularly if you are using the new podcasting app from Apple. Go scroll down and hit that five-star button and leave a review. We would love you for it. And you can always get in touch with the show with your feedback over at The Medianet on Twitter. 280 characters or less, please. And we will see you next month in December on Signal from The Medianet. This podcast is supported by LinkedIn Learning. We're all at different places in our careers. Some of us are just looking for a job. Others are trying to get promoted, manage a team, or do something new. Wherever you're at, LinkedIn Learning has more than 13,000 courses taught by industry experts to help you succeed in your own way, anytime, anywhere. It features a vast range of business, tech, and creative skills employers are looking for. Visit linkedinlearning.com slash learn for free to get a month free and to keep learning in all the career moments that matter to you.